0: Head to my website, simonmundy.com, or Amazon, Waterstone, Smith's, places like that, to get your copy.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns.
0: This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better sport is a metaphor for life and in this podcast i aim to prove that right i always like hearing from you so the best way to get in touch is via my website simonmundy.com, or i'm at Simon Mundy on social media In this episode, I'm talking to Sir Clive Woodward, who was in charge when England won the Rugby World Cup in 2003, and the theme is culture. Clive Woodward, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you very much for coming on Don't Tell Me The Score. Listen, I've got to tell you, I was out there in 2003. I was in Australia. I couldn't actually quite believe it happened. England winning the Rugby World Cup, to me that helped all the success in all the other sports in all the years that we've enjoyed since. To what degree do you go along with that statement?
2: Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I'm, I'm not sure I can comment on that in, 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 outside of... Uh, um, I think the more I look back, the more I realise that was a pretty amazing achievement, especially that night. I mean, even looking at the recent World Cup in Japan, you know, people were saying to me after England played so well against New Zealand, that was the best ever performance and all this, which potentially it was... Then when I saw the team lose in the final, I suddenly started to think back because everyone said to me, well, you, you, yes, you won the World Cup final, but you didn't really play that well. Looking back now, I think we played really well to actually okay. deliver a World Cup final win. Um, When you think the team actually won in Australia against a really good coach in Eddie, a really top team, the the Australians had just beaten New Zealand in the semi-final. So more thinking about it, that night was absolutely probably England's best ever performance because yeah. we actually won won the tournament. And um it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting since... That game a couple of weeks ago, you know, so many people said to me, you know, what, what happened, what happened? And my best conversation was with a taxi driver who said to me what happened, and I was trying to explain. He said, it's a bit like he said, it's a bit like going to the Olympics, watching Usain Bolt in the semi-final, get the world record, and everyone's going, wow, 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 this is amazing. And then three days later in the final, he comes fourth. You know, and, he, and he, it was a great analogy because what he was trying to say is, you know, World Cups are not about performance, getting ten out of ten, and all these all the stuff. It's about winning, uh-huh. and and Olympic Games are no different than that. So, it's about winning gold medals, and there, you know, no one remembers who came who came second. And in you know, England, been to four World Cup finals now. We've won one. So, looking back at two thousand and three, it, it was you know a huge achievement, which I'm hugely proud of, and everyone involved in the team.
0: I certainly think, though, for me, I know you're not going to be drawn in it, but for me, it broke that glass ceiling, and I think that a lot of the Olympics. Various successes that have come that, and that we've become used to, to me, can be almost traced back to some degree to that moment because it suddenly made everyone realise that actually, under the greatest pressure on the biggest stage, British side, English side, can actually do the business. I mean, it was like the Roger Bannister. To what degree this is a bit of a myth or not, but you know that he did the four minute mark, and then everyone knows it's possible, yeah. and then it happens.
2: Well, that was great. I think what what I really enjoyed was after the World Cup was meeting. Um, coaches from other sports you know Dave Brelsford was you know he was I mean that sums him up he wanted to know all about it he needs to just want to meet him on a kind of you know totally kind of dissect everything we've done how we're going to win about doing it and so suddenly started, started to meet you know football coaches Brelsford a lot of Olympic coaches and that's what I really enjoyed and it wasn't you know and, and it was just sharing views and ideas and because and, there is a, a commonality going through how you actually do this it's a high-performing team you know, I have this saying that, you know, great teams made are great individuals. Although you're, you're very proud you're managing a team, I think sometimes you can overdo the team stuff where, you know, I, I'm very, very clear about this. If you get every individual in your team operating at his or her optimum level, the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. So in yeah. other words, in, in the rugby team, I'm trying to create players who are the best in the world. And there's no doubt, you know, in that World Cup final team in 2003, you know, we probably had six or seven players who had gold medals around their neck, meaning they would have gotten any team. Yeah, Then we had four or five with silvers and a couple with bronzes. So everyone's on the podium. So you look at your team, if you've got that and everybody is really doing their jobs twenty four seven, three six five, 365, trying to become the best player they possibly can, the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. Mm. And
0: that's what I think we achieved. In your new book, How to Win, you talk obviously about... like leaders and basically empower great people to some degree. And what I found interesting as well is is your journey. You actually you were a football man and then were sort of press-ganged into playing rugby, press-ganged all the way up into the England team. A frustrating experience, wasn't a huge amount of winning and certainly didn't play the style of rugby that you like to play. 90s England started to get a bit of success. And then when you came in though, you didn't even have an office. From that moment through to the end, culturally you had completely transformed the setup and that's that's at the base of of all the success we all enjoy
2: yeah i think i was looking looking back i was kind of lucky because you know as a player um you know i played in the amateur days and they really were amateur Um, i was lucky enough to play on one grand slam team for for england in 1980 with an amazing group of players you know billy beaumont Mm -hmm. and frank cotton peter wheeler roger We had a household names and we won one grand slam in 1980 but outside of that we were the big underachievers we the, the game was so so amateur you know i played 21 times for england which doesn't sound very many today but that was like four or five years in those days because we only really had the five nations to play in um and and looking back now we were so amateur and i, I would give given a right arm I still would today to have played professional rugby or professional sport in that one small moment in your time where you can give it everything and i couldn't do that you know i was you know it, i was working for xerox at the time who was a photocopy company up in Leicester, and you know, I'd literally play for England on a Saturday in front of seventy-five thousand people, and all that goes with that. And then Monday morning, I'm in the Rank Xerox office, giving my forecast in how many flipping photocopies I'm going to sell that week. I mean, looking back now, you couldn't make it up, yeah, but that was yeah. what amateur was about. And then, lucky enough, the game goes professional. I'm running my own small finance company now, and I, and I think what the running your own businesses. Gave me a really, really big leg up into actually coaching the actual team because, you know, when the game went professional, I was the first full-time professional coach. And you kind of started from a blank bit of paper. So I was really lucky. It it was, you know, I literally didn't have an office or anything in in Twickenham. No one knew what was going on. And I could just start from scratch. And I just kind of threw the kitchen sink at it in terms of all my experience, but mainly my business experience about how to to develop. And all, all I knew, and I said to the players from day one, you know, Ranked six in the world, never been above six in the world, which is ridiculous considering the players we've mm. got, the money we've got, the expertise we've got in England. I was determined to keep the whole organization English, you know. I brought, I started to really develop the team. I have to say, the RFU, which is often a much maligned organization, they were fantastic with me, you know. The chief executive came in, a guy called Francis Brown. he totally backed what I did. You know, it wasn't easy, you got to sit down with these guys and explain it to them, but they backed me what I was trying to do. And, you know, we, it wasn't a straight line. We had you know, big losses. We lost in the quarterfinals. The first World Cup. I'd only been there less than two years. You know, we got beat by South Africa, but they were fantastic. They totally backed me, and it was really, really strange. That looking back now, because they backed me totally. You win the World Cup, and then you think it's all going to go fantastic. We're going to take a real dynasty. We'll never ever get yeah. beaten by the, the All Blacks <laughs> again. And then we all fall out after the World Cup. And it was yeah. one of those, it was a strange period of time.
0: Yeah, really. It's only just sort of got Back together in many ways, you know, since that time, yeah. That's why I think
2: Eddie's done a good job because yeah. you know, I, I don't want to call out anyone's names, but I think we have made some mistakes on you know who was who was coaching the team, what we've done. There's been a big, big gap since 2003, basically. Uh, and I think Jones came in four years ago and we, you know, we just got bombed out of our own tournament, didn't make the quarter finals even, which was huge disappointment. And again, you just can't believe we've got a, a world cup at Twickenham and we, we don't get out of the pool, which was just not acceptable so i think jones has come in and it's a good place for him to come in it's a bit like me you come in you're absolutely rock bottom you can only go one, one way and he's a, he's a he's a top coach um and he's done a great job you know four years later we've made the world cup final but you know he'll be the whole team will be devastated by
0: what happened in the final but but he, he got into the world cup final
2: which is yeah. an amazing achievement
0: and their young side you know four years on anyway listen let, let's turn our attention though to what you have distilled down here so You mentioned Xerox and and even though you wish you could have played professional rugby, had you not had all your experiences at Xerox, you clearly brought some of your external experience to bear in the England role. Could you have done that without your external experience? And the reason I ask that is I've done a a podcast on diversity and diversity of experience and how valuable it can be bringing knowledge in from a different sphere. And And it seems like that's what you did.
2: I'm massive on diversity. I actually run a company now called Hive Learning, which is all about diversity and inclusion and and, and understanding the importance of it in, in, in all these ways in, in terms of the culture of the business, but just thoughts and ideas. And I think um, I had two business careers. One was Xerox, big, big multinational. But probably most importantly, or probably more importantly, was then, you know, um, in the early 90s, I set up my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned with Xerox and Xerox Finance. So I set a small business up I was running that small company and we grew it from two people to like 10. So it was generally small, but it was just like 10 people in a room. There was 10 of us. It was, it was great, great fun. Uh, and I learned so much. I was, you know, I was obviously the, the boss. I was the chief executive, but you, you just learn how to handle people. You had to take risks, how to, you know, get things done. So when you take over the England rugby team, it was no different. You're running a small business. And this is what I say to people. Running a rugby team is no different than running a business. Right. It's, it's achieving results through people. And that's why I come back to my favourite line. You know, great teams are made of great individuals. It's mm. all about the people. And I was dead lucky. We had an amazing group of, group of players. You know, Martin Johnson, Delaglio, Wilkinson. You know all these guys. But they'd never achieved anything. And I had to set the vision that this was only a one, one goal in mind. And it wasn't actually to win the World Cup. It was to become the number one ranked team in the world. To do that, that shows excellence over a sustained period of time. Which we kind of delivered on, but I think my the, what I learned from running my own small business gave me the kind of real confidence of handling people. Also, things like just managing upwards, being able to talk to the chief executive of the board at the R F U, get things done, take these people with you. And I said, you know, the R F U were fantastic with me; they really did back what I was what I was doing. And I like to think we delivered in, you know in uh, spades. Basically. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, so the lessons, you know, that you talk about are very much obviously applicable to sporting teams. They're taken from your time with England, but also to, to businesses. And to some degree, you can almost apply them individually. And you talk about, you know, a winning culture being about well-judged risk.
2: Yeah. I think well-judged risk, th- this, is, this is predicated by what I call learning. Um, mm. Again, I have this saying about relentless learning. If you're an individual. Um, if I'm going to work with you, I, I want to try and make you the best broadcaster in the world. That's our goal. But this has got to be a two-way thing. So if I'm working with a, a rugby player or any, anybody, you know, this, I want to make you better at what you actually do. But we need a two-way thing. And to be a two-way thing, you've got to engage in the process. I want you to become a great learner. I want you to be out there studying what's going on, you coming back to me with ideas. So it's not just a one-way thing where I'm yeah. coaching you, and it's all from this side of the desk. I think to, to create champion individuals, it's about a two-way process. And... We're going to get on fine if I feel you're putting in the effort, you're learning, you're coming up with thoughts and ideas. We are going to fall out if I think this is one way and you're sitting there going, "Well, you're the coach, I'm the player. I'll do what I'm told." That's not what champions do. And my experience in Olympic sports was fantastic because you know I had this incredible experience with England, met absolute superstar rugby players. But then when you go in the Olympic world, you suddenly see the DNA is no different. When you're lucky enough to meet, you know Wiggins and Hoy, you know Becca Adlington, Pendleton, these amazing athletes, they're no different. They're the same DNA. They're all complete sponges. They they're all not, not yes people. They really own their own program. They work really well with the coaches, and this is where my exposure to Olympic sport, which reinforced everything I learned in the in the rugby team about how you create champion teams, and you've got to get absolute engagement from every individual. And if that individual doesn't want to engage, you, you're not going to be anywhere near as successful as you possibly can be. Now
0: you mentioned sponges there. Some people might not know what we're talking about, but you do have to some degree your own sort of vocabulary. And before we get the sponges, because that's down the track. One I do want to talk about is teachability because that relates to what you're talking about here. And you talk about it being, if you were to work with me, you'd want me to have that buy-in. And, and the key element is an ability to take on knowledge pumped by intrinsic passion. So you've got to have that passion for the subject, which makes it that much easier to take on information and to search it out.
2: Yeah, teachability is a, a bit of a mouthful, but it is, you know, my definition is very simple: It's your ability to learn, it's your ability to take on knowledge. And quite simply, in, in its purest sense, your passion for what you actually do. Um, you know, I remember, you know, meeting um, you know, athletes who, you know, if you sat them in here now and you talked about what was going on in the Olympics, uh, sorry, what was going on in the election, what was going on with Boris and Corbyn, you'd struggle. If you ask them to talk about their sport, you won't struggle. You know, these some of these people have got little or no education. If you ask to them to talk about their sport, go away and study it, they'll come mm. back with them bucket loads and bucket loads and bucket loads. So this teachability, it's not about having... Being to the right schools or some nah. wonderful education. It's a passion for what you actually do.
0: You, you gave the example of two boxers at the Olympics. I thought this was really nice.
2: Yeah, there's a couple of boxers uh, who were, you know, from travelling families almost, little or no education. You know, as I said, if you sat down here and talked about some of the stuff I spoke about, you may struggle, talk about boxing. And I did. They they come back in bucket loads and, and their eyes just open. Their passion is boxing. Their knowledge, their understanding. They can talk to me all day about this. And I, you know, I'm just learning from them. Mm. Because they've got this passion. And what I'm saying, if you want to be a real champion, a gold medal winner, win World Cups, you've got to have a passion. That's the underlining thing. But that's what I call teachability. Mm -hmm. And the opposite of teachability is somebody who's uncoachable, unteachable, a bit of a know-it-all, doesn't want to engage. And they could be the most talented person in the world. But in my experience, they're not going to make it. Uh, And, you know, you've got all sorts of examples of extremely talented people who've not made it. Because I think they've become unteachable, uncoachable. They do think they know it all. And you never the moment you think you know it all, you're going to come second.
0: Socrates, wasn't he said, the only thing I know is how little I know. No, little and I know. Humility is exactly. absolutely key, and this is a, a key factor. And you had that in the way you approached being an England coach, didn't you? you? You were always looking for little bits that you could take from various areas to improve. You gave a nice bit about you'd have people come and stay at Penny Hill Park and they had to give you one thought or whatever. And even though perhaps immediately your ego might that bristle, actually, that's where you got some great ideas from. So humility is key.
2: I used to love bringing into the England team, and the players didn't even notice these guys uh, or, or ladies. Just people who are kind of friends of mine. Um, but I knew they're fans of rugby, but I knew they're successful in what, whatever they were doing from hedge fund managers to captains of industries to headmasters and headmistresses of, of, of schools. And I used to just bring them in and just say, well, I want to show you everything. I'll just sit in the back of the room and keep out of the way. You don't go gaga when Johnny Wilkinson walks in. <laughs> just just keep out the way and keep a low profile. in here, yeah, honestly. But we're Garthal. gonna we're gonna show you everything. Yeah. You know, because I trusted them completely. Um, but I'm showing you everything because I want you to think. You know, is there anything else we should be doing? Just drive me nuts when some flipping hedge fund manager who hasn't played rugby since his <laughs> prep school under eights would come up with an idea we're not thought about, and we're supposed to be this high forming team. And I always sort of laugh, and then you sit down with your team and go. Listen, I've had this great idea, and that's how it kind of works, <laughs> you know. So you bring them in; it'd be amazing when new ideas can come from. Yeah. And you know, I, I love, you know, it, it's it, when, I, when I'm sometimes after speak at say sort of corporate uh, events. You know, I love sitting in the back of the room and listening to other people speak because yeah, I, I love sitting. You can sit in the back of the room, and I've listened to amazing speakers. You just sit in the back of the room with a bit of paper and a cup of coffee, and you're always thinking about things mm. and just a phrase or a saying, and that's where I picked this all up from. And. Mm. I always pride myself on now not being good at new ideas. What I pride myself on is listening hmm. and going, wow, that's a good idea. Then what I think I'm quite good at is if it's a good idea, put it in place and making it happen, hmm. and getting it, getting it done. I think that's what, what um, you know. a good leader will always do. So
0: that's discovered to still do, which we'll do. Yes, now, so you like talk about great people having that desire to learn, Barack Obama and Clinton whatever, who will factor in an hour a day of yeah. learning. Personally, I found it interesting. I'm more keen to learn now than, than when I was a younger man. But a lot of people, I think, perhaps do stop looking to learn. I'm assuming then you are very much in the that Obama camp.
2: Yeah, a bit like you. I think when I was at school, I wasn't a great learner. I wasn't a great academic. I wasn't sort of anyone who stood out academically. I think it's more when you've got into um, this role, especially in the well not this role only in the business world, where I was sort of you know I, I joined Xerox, especially I was kind of a graduate trainee and you were really encouraged to to study and I wanted to be successful, so I started to really study on my own mm. and I say to players now you know with the with technology now and the internet, there is no excuse there's there's so much out there all all, all, the, all the time so yeah i I absolutely pride myself on learning and you know I, I would you know without any exaggeration i'd get on the plane tomorrow and go anywhere in the world if i thought i had a chance of making me a better coach or a better manager or a better person in terms of what i actually do i think once you lose that passion your teachability then you're going to come second Once mm. you lose that it's time to step back from whatever you're actually doing but once you still got that drive and passion this is why i think people can go across different businesses different sports if you've got passion for it and you love it you'll be fine if you haven't got that absolutely drive then i think that's where that's where people come up short and they seem to be surprised by it, but they and you can spot them. You can just see guys who sort are of really putting it in. And you mentioned, you know, Johnny Wilkinson, Jason Robertson, all these guys. You know, as hugely talented players, you, you 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 see them on the pitch, on the field, they're amazing. I've been lucky to have seen them off the pitch and just what they actually put in. You know, and they're the guys coming up with the ideas. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I've heard about this. Or I've read about this. And if you get the whole team in putting, suddenly you've got all these ideas. Then your job as the kind of the head coach or the boss is to kind of filter them and disseminate them down to make sure you don't do them all because you still have time. Yeah. But if you think, one, you know, this idea is going to make the boat go faster, I'll do heaven and earth to make sure we put it in place. I won't be looking back in the months or year's time going, I oh, if only we have done that. So sometimes they, they work, most times they do. It's not a case of being reckless about it. You've got to really study them, understand it, can we afford it, can we do it, and then just drive it forward. And knowing you've got a team of people who are going to say, okay, we'll give this a go. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we won't we we worry about that. Yeah. At, least, at least we've tried it. That's where Johnson was great. People don't understand Martin Johnson at the time. Johnson was one of the best players we've ever of a rugby People forget how good a player he was. But as captain, he was great. I was just saying, look, I'm gonna, we're going to do this. And he'd just go, fine, let's get on with it. Let's not don't need to talk about it. We'll soon let you know if it's going to work or not. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. we get on with it. And that was his big strength, because that's what he wanted. You didn't want some guy you captain debating and have a big issue about it let's get on with it and we'll Mm. soon find out
0: to me that's part of what life's all about is continually growing and you can apply it obviously to business to sport you can apply it to you know yourself to relationships to to any sphere do you agree that growth and never-ending learning if you like is part of what it's all about
2: I think it's totally so everything's about I call it relentless learning that's my that's my saying because I think I use the word, in, and I think relentless applies to sport. You've got to be re- relentless about it, but there's a real process. You know, I like the idea of spending an hour a day on, on me, on mm-hmm. learning or improving yourself. It could be physically or mentally, but one hour just on yourself, and I think that's not too much to actually ask. Yeah. But it's not always the physical side. You know, I, I, I like the teams of people are working with. I like everyone to kind of look the part, be the part, mm-hmm. get physically fit as well as mentally fit. But I've I come back to learning and, and working in a, in a room of people where you know ideas are going to come through and you learn from each other, not only from, you, from yourself. You can really bring ideas to the table for other people to actually think about as well.
0: So let's talk about sponges and rocks. So sponges basically are just people, you know, like Martin Johnson, who say, let's give it a whirl. And rocks are the people who are, are lacking humility and, and stuck in their ways. And something that comes up repeatedly on Don't Tell Me The Score is having a growth mindset that I'm not yeah. good at something dot, dot, dot yet. Yeah.
2: A sponge and rock, I mean, what it is, is i mean, a sponge between your ears or a rock between your ears. And I think keeping the stress is you're never one thing or another. And normally, when you, uh, you know, join new sports teams, new companies, new jobs, you're sponge, you, you like, you know, learning, you know, listening to programs like this, just in case you were to learn something, you, you are, a, are a sponge. Oft, often, it's the, the longer you've been in an organization, you can just drift into being a rock, mm-hmm. where you, you suddenly think, I'm gonna, not going to do this anymore. And I think um, if if you become the rocker as the leader of the team, you are going to come second. But if you see someone in your team who's drifting, that's when you just got to sit them down and go, look, we've got to get you back. And we need you really inputting, thinking about this, or how you used to be. And most people don't actually know they've just drifted into being a rock. It's, it's, it's not something you consciously do. And that's the secret to management. Can you get everyone in, I mean everybody in your organisation, your team, really thinking, really inputting all, all the time. So it is a very conscious thing. And, you know, I think the, the the words kind of work. You're a sponge or a rock. And it becomes part of the language. I mean, you see, the, the players ring me up, and you get a player ringing you up. You go, Look, I'm, I'm not being a rock, but. <laughs> <laughs> really? It's
0: dripped into them like that? Yeah, it's in
2: the language. I'm a yeah. sponge or a rock. And I need everyone. <laughs> looking around, I'm looking around the room. You, you, I need everyone to be sponges. And uh, it, it kind of it's just simple language, but I think people can understand it. Yeah. You know, sponge between your ears, yeah. not, not not a rock between your ears. <laughs> Absolutely. And as I say, sometimes it's the more senior people that have been there for a long time where they do think they know it all. And they don't. The moment you think you know it all, then you think you're in, a, you're in a dangerous position.
0: So to have those conversations, to bring a rock back into this, the world of sponges, uh, and and you talk about this, the importance of, of communication. communication yeah. So so, what are some of your communication rules then?
2: Well, well I, I probably, and I, I can say this pretty um, confidently because I've been involved with the Olympics and all their sports, I'd, I'd probably have more one-on-one meetings than any coach I've ever seen. Um, and sometimes it's hard because it takes more time you see a lot of people have team meetings. To, to, to me, you, you know, the one-on-one meetings are absolutely key because you, you, you can you know, eyeball someone and really get across what you're trying to say, especially if you're not happy with them, if it's a negative. You, you can't hide from this.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: And certainly if you just go back to your kind of my, my business career, certainly in a big multinational, in, in say Xerox, people get away with being a rock. You know, you can just dream to be, no one's going to bring you back because, okay, he's been here a long time and all that stuff. When you run your own small company, you can't have a rock. You, you, and also that perhaps mm. that someone just stands out and because if you have one rock in your team, you know and it's a small business you you 're going to go out of business, you know the kids' are going to have to change schools you 've got to sell your house. This is big stuff, so running a small company you can't you can 't hide mm. and you and you certainly can 't be in a rock because your whole company's going to actually suffer for it and that 's one of the things I really really learned and that's why I th- you know I'd really admire people running small businesses be, because you know how tough it is, but it's far more exciting be, because you're involved with this you know every day we're trying to take on the big boys and all this sort of stuff. And the same happened in sport in the rugby team. You know, I was very, very clear. You know, I look back on my England career, with huge kind of re- regrets. You're hugely proud to play for England. But looking back, we never really took on the, the big boys. We, mm. we never said, we can be better than the All Blacks. When I took over the team, you know, I had to sort of shut up or, you know, put up or shut up now because I've been saying all this stuff. So you get the big job and I said, right. The, and I was very clear, but the only enemy, and it was the only enemy, was the All Blacks, South African Australia. That was it. I kind of like the Six yeah. Nations. I love France. These are our kind of friends. Yes, we compete. But the real enemy was an hemisphere. And we had to now absolutely take them on. And those games became the big games of the year. The Six Nations was great fun. The big games, can we start to beat Australia? Because we had to get the mindset yeah. over them. But we we had to do it on the field of play, but off the field of play. We had to become better at them everything we actually did, which I, I've got no doubt we did. By by 2003, I think those three teams especially, were looking at England. We're the number one team in the world. But... They were going. What the hell are they doing now? And Eddie yeah. said, Eddie said, really complimentary things about us. You know, he, he said, you know, we're all chasing England now.
0: Yeah.
2: And but then, unfortunately, after the World Cup, it all fell Absolutely.
0: apart. But that sort of comes back to what I was sort of saying at the beginning, in terms of get that inferiority complex. And I loved what you did in terms of stopping calling them the All Blacks and referring to them as New yeah. Zealand. Yeah. You know, some. I'll well, like stick
2: for that, by the way.
0: Uh, but but what a, that was a masterstroke, you know, right? So communication, we spoke man. Another thing that I that came up that I really enjoyed with you talking about mindset, and again this comes back to it, rather than you know you being the guy who tells everyone how things should be, it's about getting people to have buy-in to be part of the process.
2: Again, I, you know, and I guess this is from just business training. I, I love these little, but I, one of my favorite things is no such thing as a dumb idea. It doesn't matter if you're the newest person in the team. If you've got a thought or idea of something we can do this better. You've got to stand up and say it, whether it's private to me, one on one, or in front of the team, there's no such thing as a dumb idea. Where you and me are gonna really fall out, if you're sitting there with a thought and you're kind of a bit nervous about saying so because you're you're worried about what I may think as the as the as the head of the team, or you're gonna get some banter and stick from your teammates, then we are gonna fall out. So you you've got to get that culture where people are very confident about what they're what they're what they're putting in. And also Especially the England team, think of the England team, it, it's it's not a full time business. These players all come from twelve different clubs. They've all got great coaches, they've all got different ways of doing things. So you've got to find a way where very quickly we can create the England way of actually doing things that kind of takes into account everything you've done in, in your own clubs. They're all they're all very different. Mm. Even just simple stuff. You know, the way Leicester will defend will be different than the way WAS defend. So suddenly you've got players coming in with different ways of doing things. So your job, my job as a head coach, was to get all these ideas coming in. And then absolutely make decisions. This is what we're going to actually do. You know, you you, you can't delegate the whole thing, but what you do want is real open debate, real open discussions. You know, our team meetings got a bit tasty at times. They were they were great fun because we wanted to win, and that's what I really loved. I love when things got a little bit spiky. You know, the testosterone was flying around the room. But as long as we all walked out of the room holding hands and smiling, that was what it's all about. But I think in the team meeting rooms, because we want to win, and when we start to you know, evaluate some of the performance and some of the stuff, it, it, it really got quite interesting at the time because we wanted to win. We knew we had a team that could win the World Cup, and this was a chance of a lifetime. But we weren't going to win it if we're all going to sit there and actually be sort of a little bit quiet or conservative in putting our views forward. And you know, it was my job then a new guy comes in the team because we could have an 18 year old, and I'm saying this guy could be right. You know, I'm not assuming mm-hmm. he's, and often he was, See, he comes with a fresh thought, fresh ideas. So it was my job to encourage this person to speak to me. One on one, or more importantly, what you used to love speaking in the actual team meeting, have the confidence of an 18-year-old to stand there and say something, knowing that Johnson, Delalio, and these guys are all looking at him, and you know not being worried about the consequences. And that that says a lot about the mindset of any individual. And also, you you spot people. You, you don't want people to speak in for speaking's sake. You, you're trying to evaluate what they're actually saying, and does it make any sense at all? Um, and I think that's how you grow the business. And you've you spoken a few times about growth, growth mindset. It's growth mindset individually and collectively mm. within within the whole
0: team. And you need psychological safety to be able to come into the meetings and know that... Any idea you come up with not going to be shot down. Sure, I mean, totally. You talk about having an like a young guy come in who might have those ideas. What I find interesting then to go back to your England career because you wanted to play an expansive running style of rugby. That at that time there was this pervasive idea that it's not the done thing. Yeah, playing for England helped
2: me hugely because you know I'd kind of been there, got the t-shirt,
0: but hugely
2: frustrating the way we we played because I look back at England career. You know, this where I'm not showing my kids the videos of me playing rugby because they'd all walk out and make a cup of tea because I hardly ever touched the ball. Yeah. I spent most of the time looking up in the air trying to catch the ball. We just kicked the ball all day. Um, and I, I, you know, I had this feeling or this, this kind of vision of, you know, Twickenham. 85,000 people on their feet going nuts by the way we're playing, which I'd never seen before. Trickland was this quite quite sangrid, kind of almost dull place where people just watched the game, had a few beers. Mm-hmm. There was no excitement because there was no excitement on the pitch to way we are playing. So my opening to th- the players, we, we, you know, and, and I was doing this not to be kind of romantic or anything, was to actually say, if we get 85,000 people on their feet going nuts by the way we're playing, we'll be doing everything right and we're going to take some beating. So we're now going to re-look really at how we do about that. And this was all about not kicking the ball away, about playing the game so fast, from 1 to 15, we're going to play the game faster than anybody else. This was faster than scrums, faster than line-outs. We're going to have to be the fittest team in the world, which when we started, we were nowhere near it. And we're going to play a game that no one can actually live with. And even now, looking back at that 2003, I still think we're ahead of the, the current team in terms of just the speed we played the game at. You look at the physical conditioning the players were in in 2003, It was amazing. And I think we did take the game to a whole new level based on the way we played. And just look at the number of tries we scored. Mm. And the players loved it. There was genuine excitement. And when I'm picking my team also, I'm also thinking Saturday morning, I want to wake up, see that team should go, wow. Well, whatever happens today, this team is going to play. But more importantly, the opposition have to play really well to beat this team. And that's how I picked my team. Took took certain risks on players. So I wanted to play the game fast, fast, fast. And no one ever done that before, ever, in an England shirt. Sure. And... You know, I, we we generally got 85,000 people on the feet going nuts by the way we played. Absolutely. And our wing loss ratio between World Cups was astonishing. I think we played, I think I think I know, we played 51 games and won 46, um, including 14 away from home. So if we played the Sun Hemisphere, the teams we had to beat, we beat them 14 times in a row. Way, and that was unheard of. Yeah. But it, it wasn't just because we had these amazing players, which we did, but they really bought into this, we're going to do something special and we're going to love the way we actually play the game now, which I didn't really do as an England player. I love playing for England. Don't make no bones about it. It was great playing for England, save safe play for England. But (laughs) equally, I'd love to have looked at games and i go, wow, I just watched this game. It was fantastic. And I can look back at so many of those games between between the two World Cups, just winning it, where you look back from a player, a coach or a fan, you go, wow, that's a great game to watch.
0: So let's say that someone would come to you with an idea and from from the club, is this where your performance behaviours come in? Your dis, your discover, distill, do. So you would take an idea from one of them. So that's the discovery part. Distill it down into a single line, and then put it into practice.
2: Yeah, call this 3D learning. And I, I haven't a clue where I picked this up from, but I've had this forever. I can never. It's where I look at any any situation. So 3D learning is if you let's just talk about um, uh, Scrum defense. So you, scrum, you have Scrum Defence. So you've got a Scrum. We're going to defend a Scrum. So the discover is we're going to get all this information in from all 12 clubs, all the players. We're going to just put all this information. And you never stop discovering. You're, you're, you're learning about what this actually means, what it entails. So you're not just learning from the players. You're learning everything. But the most important thing then is once you've got all this discover, how do you distill it, the second D? in the 3D learning, how you distill it down to key points. Like, I have all this stuff we've learned, yeah. what are the key points? So what... to
0: be able to put it into, like, a sentence, essentially.
2: Simple, maybe three or four bullet points. Bang, bang, bang. But it's easy to understand. Totally. It's got to be in simple English. Everyone understands, whoever you are. If I explain it to you, anybody, you'd go, understand. And that's the that's real art. And that's the job of your head coach. But you never stop discovering, never stop learning. And you can change these key points, your distilled points, as you, as you go along. But maybe three or four. And the third D is do. Okay, once we you know our key points, which could be, say, defensive scrum, line speed, how do we do it better than anybody else? How do we practice it? How do we train for it? How do we become a real part, part of what we actually do? So the do is really important. Mm. And also to start to be quite creative. How do we do this? How does, it, how does a player do this on his own in his back garden with his, with his kids? How can you still be practicing stuff when you're away from the training paddock? And that is really important. So that's the 3D learning. And yeah. it's just so simple, but it kind of works. But again, you need the players to understand it. So they're inputting, here's the key points, how do we do it? And even on the do, you know, if, you, if, you, if anyone can think of a practice, how we do this better, just make sure you bring it in. Of course, yeah. we're getting stuff from all over the place then. And that's it. And that was the 3D learning. So you can use it to any subject you can think about, right. anything. Can you, just,
0: can you think of a, just a quick example of, of, of like one that would go all the way through? I can give you hundreds. Let's use the... the really drop, simple one, yeah. The drop goal routine. When, when zigzag. Zigzag. You know, so you you, you
2: talk about drop goals. Uh, I think drop goals are huge. We started to examine drop goals. Um, and you'd
0: learnt from 99, of course. I think, well, God, well, we'd, we'd learnt... <laughs> In a brutal five fashion. Five drop goals.
2: When I watched that again, what, I can't believe about those <laughs> drop goals is the miles out. He was slotting them from everywhere. From everywhere. They weren't like in front of the post, no, like no halfway line. No. I've never bang. seen
0: a drop, there's never been a drop goal performance. he's never like missed. Gianni De Beer, And he didn't, he, all like, they weren't just in front of the post. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, so we, started, we started examining drop goals, for example, and drop goals to me, not just to win the World Cup in the, the last minute, but it could be the first minute. You know, we decide mm. when we're going to drop goals because it's, you can't defend it. No. I remember there was a great conversation with, I think it was um, Johnny and, and Mike Kat. And this was a serious conversation. I said, OK, just forget the, the rules of rugby. We get no points for scoring tries. We only, we only score by scoring drop goals. How many we get in a game? Of course, they looked at me. I could see they were going, oh, here we go. What's he <laughs> going on this? So Johnny, I said, Johnny, how many, how many we get? We've got you in the team. We've got Kat in the team. we both drop goals. How many do we get? I think Johnny said, like, 10. And then Kat goes, no, it'll probably be 12. I said, OK, let's say it's 10. That's 30 points. How many people... Are going to score 30 points against this England team? Nobody. So why don't we do it? Just silence in the room. <laughs> Total <laughs> silence. You don't see how I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said this is important stuff. And I, I, so, and um, so then we start to discover really what it's about. But then most important, what are the key points about drop goals? You know, and then we came up with this distill, Here here the key points. And the zigzag is just how you, you know, when you you, you know, normally from a best drop goal. best way of doing it. The best way of doing it. A drop goal, you're probably coming from a scrum or a line out. The World Cup drop goal that won yeah. won the World Cup first came from a line out. And then we just go zigzag, which is going left, right, left, right. You, you don't go wide. And the whole mindset of the team is: can we get the ball right under the post so you can't miss? So you can't miss. We're right. And you just punch, punch, punch. Because also what happens, the defense knows the drop goal's coming. So they start to go a bit wider. They're gonna try and get the charge down. And that's what happens. Dawson, said, goes, Dawson goes. Dawson goes through, and we thought about that, and we practiced that, and we drilled this and drilled this and drilled this. And it's interesting is is you know, if you you can see him on the touch showing you know, you know, that flip and drop goal because we've gone I think we're still not close enough. we can go further we're getting makes easy yards, and then I can see Dawson lining up wilkinson wilson has gone back uh, so Wilkinson's gone back in the pocket I'm on the touch side, I'm shouting no, I'm shouting no, no, because I think we should <laughs> yeah. go further, so we can't miss this yeah. is it yeah, yeah. there's like one minute to go, so Wilkinson you know swings his right foot, goes same between the posts, So you then me shouting. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> At the time I thought we we're too far out. Right. I was wanting to go another couple yeah. of couple of things. So but it was it wasn't just one of those things I think think people's sport just happens. That was a whole process mm. based on how we broke the game down and the three D learning of discovered still do was how I as a coach implemented it through through the players from a coaching team and how we practiced it.
0: Uh, two things to say. First of all, it shows as well that what might seem like a bad experience at the time, the 1999 quarterfinal may end up being a bit of a blessing in disguise. That
2: was a bad experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, you said you were in mourning for a few days. In, in, anyway, well, we weren't dwell well on that. Few a few years. You, right. uh, I spoke to Johnny Wilkinson on here. It's well worth uh, having a listen in to to Johnny talk through his drop goal because it was like a, a, an out-of-body experience. But that's a, I mean, a, a clear illustration then of of your um, discover to still do. Right, moving on, let's talk about wasps. Now, you're a wasp, Clive, aren't you? Someone willing to challenge things. You've got to have that person who is in a team or in a setup in a business, who comes in and says, why are we doing this? And you talk about, um, what's his name, Yehuda Shinner? Yehuda Shinner, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what he brought to the table?
2: Yehuda Shinner was introduced to me by um, a very good friend of mine called Michael Spiro, who was the boss of a company called LNX, and um, in my finance day, we used to do all their financing. And he, just, when I was now coaching England, he just said, "I've just met this guy called Yudai Shiner in, in Tel Aviv, and he's ex-Israeli um, uh, um, uh, Air Force or Armed Forces. But he's he's come up with this program called Winning Behaviors, and he said I think it's fascinating. So it's me being a sponge, never <laughs> it's great, put him in touch with me. Next thing, I'm on a plane to Tel Aviv." Now, i'm coaching england at the time i literally couldn't wait to go and see this guy because he just sounded fascinating yeah. so never been to tel aviv in my life before just me explaining me getting onto the our plane would be a, 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 an experience in itself but I eventually get on this plane i'm in tel aviv and he was he was amazing um and he literally met me at the airport and went to, back to his house and he caught he started calling this thing called seat up which is correctly thinking under pressure Aye. and that's where it came from and uh but the first thing he said to me, and it was a fascinating thing, i have been coaching him for about a year, I think, or two years. He just said to me, OK, and this is why I loved him. He said, I know nothing about rugby. Yeah. There's not a lot of rugby played in Tel Aviv, if we're, if we're brutally honest. He said, I've never heard of rugby. I'm a, I'm a kind of a military person. Yeah. I understand football. Um, what are the basics of rugby? So I kind of looked at him, and I, my immediate question was, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, that's not a good start to our conversation. What are the basics of rugby? And I started thinking about it, and I couldn't answer him. And I said, what do you mean by basics? He said, what are the things you've absolutely got to get right? And I started to think about it, you know, was it. Was it tackling? Was it passing? Was it all this stuff? I couldn't answer it. And he just said, and he, and he said, well, that sums, we've got a lot of work to do. So if you don't know the basics, you don't know the things you've got to get absolutely right, the chances are your team don't, your players don't, and you're all over the place. So I'm like looking at him. It's really annoying me, this guy at this stage, because I, I couldn't answer the questions. And... Um, I went back, and went to get my. I spent two days in literally in this house, locked in this room, doing all this stuff. And I went back to the, my England coaches, and I sat down with the coaches, Andy Robinson, Phil Larder, Dave Reddin, Dave, all these amazing guys. And I said, okay, what are the basics of rugby? And of course, they couldn't answer me, and they all got different, different answers. So we started to really study this, study this thing called basics. In other words, one of the things you've absolutely got to get right. And we studied them, and they became so obvious. And the, the basics of rugby became so obvious, it was quite simply scrums, line outs, and restarts. And even that, scrums was 40%, lineouts was 40%, and restarts was 20-20. So we basically learned by all the stats and data that if we picked our kind of reasonably best team within two or three players, if we put the ball in the scrum and 100% of the ball, and if we put the ball in the lineouts and won 85% of the ball, we never lost a game. So suddenly the basics became that. And then suddenly we start to introduce the players and we start to realise this was the most important thing that have all this stuff, you know, have all this wonderful, amazing stuff. Unless you get your scrum right, your line out right, and your restarts right, especially your scrums like you can't win the game. So that suddenly started to affect the way we coached, the way we played, the, the way I selected the team, and the, and the whole thing. And this think that last World Cup final, you know, 14 scrums, and I think we conceded six penalties. You can't win the game. You can't win the game. That That's it. So suddenly the basics become absolutely key. So I'd I'd say to you as a, as a broadcaster, what are the basics? What are the absolute okay. say the two things without any shape? If I get this right, yeah. if I get this right, I know I'm going to do a good interview, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you go to companies or sports teams. Go
0: let me answer you, Clive. I'm going
2: to ask you, but but you go to companies and sports teams, um, and you ask them that, and you get the same thing. then no one can actually say that is the absolute thing we've got to get right. So, so what are the basics? So of the he,
0: here, here they are, and and actually it comes back to another one of your sayings, which is confidence is preparation, and for yeah. me it is two things preparation yep. as you've seen i've done a lot see, of yeah, i've done amazing. a lot of research for you and then the other thing is just planning structure those two things and then and then the obviously, so you know, obviously if you, hit record but the, you know if you
2: know you get those right there's a really high chance you're going to yeah, yeah. which is fantastic but you you find a lot of people don't Recently, i went to a um a, a company a friend of mine works there it was it was a big um uh, amusement um was well, not not arcade but you know where these roller coasters yeah, all this yeah. it's a big business theme park yeah theme park sorry was a big, big business. And I sat down with their senior management and said, okay, what, what are the basics? And for the, the first company ever, they all as one immediately, safety. they just safety, 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 safety. Unless we all understand the importance. If we have one bad instance in here, this place gets shut down. And they understood that. So the basics of their business wasn't creating these wonderful rides and all that sort of stuff. The thing they had to get right. And they're the, probably the only business where I've had literally say 10 out of 10 people go write it down that was the number one thing they all got that that's what's a great start because you can build on that now so how but how do we do safety better how what are our key points how do we practice it how do we do it how do we don't just don't just park it over there and say we think we've done this you must always keep on top of it so in rugby scrums are lineouts, outs you the top level unless you can do all you like unless you can scrum properly and win your lineup properly you can't win the game no and that's what
0: And we saw it in the Rugby World Cup final, didn't we? Yeah, England's scrum. That was it.
2: People say say to me, "What happened?" That's what happened. You can you can talk all day about all the other stuff. Their scrum got smashed, and you can't. I I can't recall. I coached England over eighty times. I can't recall our scrum ever going backwards because I learned this really early on. You've got to have a scrum that can. You know, we spend it. Then we, based on that alone, we hire Phil Keith Roach, one of the best scrum coaches in the world, full time. Your full time job is to make sure you make sure I pick the right people to scrummage properly. But more upon the coaching side of you, we get ahead of anyone else in our ability to scrum. We, we then take on a full-time line-out guy, Simon Hardy, full-time line-out coach. These are the real specialist coaches who are working for me, Andy Robinson, who are like the main coaches. But we had real specialists in these basics that we knew we had to get right. And Your only job is line-out and scrum. That's your job in life. And you start to put that on people who are good coaches, then you'll get results. And they then fix your selection, how you train, everything else. So the basics are absolutely key in terms of you know, any high-performing team. But you've got to understand what they actually are. And everyone in your organisation yeah. will go, bang, bang, bang. That's the basics of our game.
0: Right, one we obviously have to talk about is Teacup. And, and this. what I really like about Teacup, so thinking clearly... Correctly. <laughs> crikey. See, I'm not doing it. Thinking correctly under pressure is the idea you can train mental toughness. Yeah. Talk about teacup and also how someone listening could improve their teacup. Well, first of all,
2: teacup came from Yudar Shunir, because yeah. yeah, yeah. the, the Israeli guy, you mentioned the Royal Marines, I mean, he was, he was a military person. And he was just talking about what they did in the in Israeli armed forces. And he said, you know, we're all about pressure. And he said, you know, if you think of the history of Israel, you know, they've, they've learned from what their history is, you know, we're not gonna ever, ever be pressurized or not handle any situation. So they're tough. But I changed, and he got really stressed with me about this, because I've got this seat-up, and I've just moved the records around. So instead of seat-up, let's call it teacup, a very English word, which I won't forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of correctly, and he's, he's no, you can't. He's, and he got really quite annoyed at me. And I went, well, I, I, I don't care what you yeah, yeah, and, I, I and rules. I yeah, can yeah. just see this teacup. Yeah, yeah. And teacup is thinking correctly under pressure. And it's, it's very straightforward. And uh, if you think of people listening who have got children, say, you know, I've got three kids. They're all kind of grown up now. And if they're listening to this, they'd all fold their arms and cross their legs. <laughs> on. Uh, here he goes off in his teacup stuff. It's, it's an education process. Because what we're saying is they're normal kids. They're out there. They will come across pressure situations. If they've not experienced them before, which probably the chances are they won't, but more importantly, they've not thought through what would I do if that was happened to me in that situation. Uh, or they've not discussed it with their friends or their parents or their family. The chance of thinking correct under pressure are really small. All these horrendous words kick in, you know, choke, freeze, bottle, rabbits in the headlights. Conversely, if you've thought through in a non-pressurized situation, if this was to happen, what would we do? There's a very high chance, backed up by the most sophisticated data, you'll think correctly and make the right decision in that moment in time. But it's not about experience. It's about actually thinking through in advance what am I going to do in that situation? So what I did with the rugby team was to actually just role play situation after situation after situation. Mm. And at times I used to like having three things available in, the, in a team room, a, a clock, a scoreboard and a whiteboard. And I'd just bring a player up and say, you used to use Matt Dawson, one of your BBC guys who, you know, brilliant player, but the, one of the brightest guys we've ever played with. I'd just start, stand Dawson in front of these three things. And go, OK, scoreboard, you know, England 12, Australia 16, we're four points down. Clock, there's five minutes to go. Then on the whiteboard, I'd set up a situation and say, what would you do? Now, if he or she, if I'm talking to the ladies' team, if that player can't answer me immediately, potentially there's somebody who's not, at the moment, been able to think correctly in the pressure. Because most pressure things have a time, a time thing attached to them. So if, if Matt's got to stand there and go, OK, what would we do here? We haven't got time to do that. We're four points down. Here's the situation. What would you do? So Matt would say what you would do, sit down, we'd then have a debate on the team about it, and we wouldn't leave the room until we'd all 100% agree that's what we would do. Then when it happens in the real world on Saturday or, you know, there's a high chance you'll make the right decisions. And you end up with a library of all this stuff. You just keep, 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 keep. Now, you can change it, but you just keep all this sort of stuff. And I see so many sports teams in all sports when the real pressure, you can see them trying to make it up at, at that moment in time. That's what you can't do. And I think this teacup stuff is, is, is huge. And it's just a, it's how you educate people to think correctly under pressure. And the key word is correctly. Can you, make, can you make the correct decisions in that moment in time?
0: So, a, a couple of examples you gave, really nice ones. So, um, at the Olympics, obviously, because you were involved uh, very closely with with 2012, a key person in that. But so, uh, Emily Cibone, the Australian, Australian swimmer, swimmer yeah. yeah, who basically what knocked out, um, you know, the fastest time in the in the heats, and then said, you know, she she just assumed she'd won, so she hadn't considered defeat and loss to Missy Franklin. But the one that really. I shouldn't say tickled, but did tickle me somewhat with was the uh, Chinese divers. The divers. So just yeah, explain what happened. Well,
2: that was that was from the Athens Games. It's, oh, just, right, okay. it's just a very famous yeah. one. But you know these these two divers, it's called Bo and Canaan. They were the they'd never been beaten, um, they'd never lost, and, and quite simply, what happened was that after you do five dives to win the gold medal in the synchronized pairs, after four dives, they're way ahead. So they've got you know the way ahead. I think it was the Americans and Russians in second and third. So these two have got one dive to win the gold medal. You know, they're the world champs have never been beaten. They're the two two superstars of world diving. China, the best diving country, bar none. So they do this dive, and they literally land on their backs. It was the worst dive you've ever, ever seen. It's like you and me doing it after a few beers on a Saturday <laughs> night, it was that bad. And what all that happened was, when they were about to dive, uh, this guy had got through all the Greek security. This is in Athens, in the, in the uh, Athens games. He'd got through all the Greek security, and he got up on the springboard. So if you imagine the high diving board, there's this other guy who'd got, He's on the springboard, he's got a tutu on, and <laughs> a numbers on his chest, which is a betting number. So they can't dive, basically, because this guy's on the board jumping up and down, and eventually jumps in, and it all kicks off. This was a huge security breach. It doesn't even need to tell you or your audience, you know, the history of Olympic Games and security isn't crash shot. So when something like this happens, it's a huge, huge thing. So they can't dive. So they're sent back down the changing room, and they sat down there for a huge amount of time because they've never experienced this before. So what they what happened is they lost their routine, they lost their mode. They've never been asked to back off a dive. I mean you think that's ridiculous because there's so many things could happen when you're on the, on the top diving board, you're about to dive. You know, and I've sort of thought about this through and done sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, exercises with a lot of people about this. I've, I'm up to about 30 things could happen from, you know, from uh, pigeons to lasers to a terrorist attack to electricity. To all sorts of stuff, you know. Someone's dealing, mm. up to thirty things could actually happen for the judge to say you can't dive back down the changing room. So it could happen. So what I'm saying is that is a classic teacup moment. Can you think correctly? So what you do is delay ten minutes, twenty minutes, an hour. But you, what you don't do is sit there and think, "What the hell are we going to do now?" And they just completely choked. Then they came out and made their dive. And that's when they landed on their back and they came eighth. Yeah. So that one moment in time, they didn't understand how to think correctly in the pressure purely because they're not through thought through ever. Could this happen? So this comes about what we've been speaking about is ideas coming through from all the team about, oh, we've we got this covered, we've we got this covered. And you mentioned the Royal Marines. You know, I learned so much from the Royal Marines because, you know, when you think about the Royal Marine officer, these guys who go to, to war to look after us, their average age is 21, 22 They've not experienced all this stuff. But what they do, and we've learned this, they spend hours and hours and hours in the classroom just going through scenario after scenario after scenario. So they are amazing sportsmen. They're amazing athletes. They can run forever, these guys. They're incredibly fit. They're great with their rifles, all this stuff. But their real skill is how they think correctly in pressurised situations. And what they taught me is you can't possibly experience this because we're all young people. And also, you imagine war. You get into the most bizarre predicaments, but the more you can actually think about it, and their big thing is, can they think correctly under pressure? And that 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 again, you know, we learnt so much from those. And that, was I said before, about you, you go on the pitch, it's nil nil. Doesn't matter what happens on the pitch, you've got to come out having won. You know, these guys in the in the military, Yudai Shinir, the Royal Marines, they get on that helicopter. They think they know what's going to happen. All they know is they've got to get back on the helicopter and come back in one piece and safe and done whatever they they they're. they're, they're, they're their job is but what they're making clear is it doesn't happen the way you know, it's always yeah. supposed to happen you yeah. know teacup allows you to think well, once you get away with this thinking even if something comes up you've not thought about before there's a chance are you'll you'll think you're okay, thinking in that way in that way you've got yeah. that process in, in, in yeah you've got that process in place and we did a huge amount of things like that the, hence back to the world cup final i was so pleased the way we handled the referee what yeah. was going on because there's pressure everywhere and we could have completely folded and lost that game yeah and being the fourth team to make the final and not win, yeah, yeah. Which that's why I come back to it. The more I think about it, that is England's best ever game.
0: So those Chinese divers as well—they came out and and they did to some degree blame it on on the man in the tutu. And that you know when you've got this teacup, then that feeds into another thing that you talk about, which is having a no moaning culture, no what ifs, no what you, what you know. And seen. if they'd have been thinking in that way, that they wouldn't have done that. And you did say something very uh, interesting just quickly about this. You mentioned your kids. You talk a lot when they were growing up about teacup with you with your kids. Yeah, so you great. can apply this. Anyone listening, this isn't just for sports teams or business. This is Anyone
2: totally, Yeah. It's you know, just think of you know, on the streets, when they're out in pubs, nightclubs, whatever. I'm talking about children now. Yeah. You know, how are they going to handle this? What are you going to do? So it's you know, you, you just keep to a, to a, to a fault, trying to make them understand what can actually happen, and using your own experience to to make sure that they've got all the bases covered. You know, honestly, now they're all kind of grown up around the world. I get texts and tweets from <laughs> all around the world going dad have a look at this not a lot of teacup going on here and it's in sport and it's business ingrained in it's, heads, it's ingrained in there it's great i mean, yeah. I, you know without being too serious about this but it is a serious subject if 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 you're walking down the street in oxford street and someone comes out with a knife what do you do have you thought about it mm. or do you just freeze yeah, and go cool. what do i do yeah. now if you've actually thought through what i would actually do there's a higher chance i think under a real pressure situation which just become some nutter comes out from any, anywhere. It can happen to anybody. You know that. Yeah. Um, what do you do? How do you handle it? You know, What are you wearing at the time? What clothes can you defend yourself with? All this sort of stuff. And this is what you just learn to do. And that's that one incident can actually save you or not. And it's just really being on top of all this sort of stuff. And it's a, it's just teacup. And, you know, as I've got three great kids, but they understand this. And I've just become a grandfather for the first time. So, Congratulations. So Jess will now be teaching her little daughter, <laughs> Zephy, Teacup, I'm sure. So she'll kind of understand it even more now. Now she's a parent.
0: Very final thing, and this one won't take long. Is is moving beyond number one?
2: Well, what beyond number one? And again, I got this listening to a, um, a, a as a conference where the company I was at they're the number one in the world. So the number one in the world, and uh, we got to number one in the world. twos for the World Cup. We were the number one ranked team in two thousand yeah. two thousand one. So yeah. I, I think we could have won the World Cup oh, yeah, any, that... any any time then. So when you get to number one, what do you do? Because suddenly everyone's chasing you. you are there to be shot at so what what number one was, and I, I learned this from this this business we're now not going to become just the number one rugby team in the world we're going to become the number one sports team in the world. so we're now going to we're now going to start to study other sports, other things we do, and if anybody in sport is looking in to say, "Okay, we want to look at someone, they're going to come look at the England rugby team. What are we doing?" around you know all these things around nutrition data analytics sports psychology all this sort of stuff let's go and study other sports to make sure we're ahead of other sports and what we're actually doing so you kind of open your doors a bit so we're going beyond number one so we're not satisfied of being the best rugby team in the world can we be the best sports team in the world or can we can we be the best uh, team sports team in the world start to actually then invest in your team your your coaches some of your players even to go and see what other people are actually doing to make sure we're beyond number one and that's you know and that's why, again, learned from the business world. It was a great term, and we used that big time. We were number one in the world. What do we do now? Do we just sit here and be shot at, or do we go to a whole new level so these guys are still chasing us? Yeah. And that's what I was most proud of doing. And I used to leak stuff to the press and to make sure, you know, Eddie Jones in Australia was reading this, because he'd be thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what are they doing now? Yeah. And sometimes it was exaggerated a bit. But I knew the impact it was having, because I wanted them all to think, we're not standing still. We're not just waiting here now. We're going beyond number one and we're
0: moving forward still. Which ties back into that continual growth and learning, which yeah. is what it's all about on an individual, a business, and a sporting level. Take right, uh, Clive Woodward, Sir Clive Woodward, it's been an absolute joy having you in. Thank you very much. Thank I thoroughly you. enjoyed How to Win, another uh, absolute belter of a book. Very kind of you
2: to say so. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Turn with the Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say, I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye.